I want to invite you just to um, get your eyes down on the passage we're looking at in Mark chapter 10. I want to read to you um, two stories, one of them very short and one much longer. We're going to devote most of our attention to uh, the longer story. And we're going to pick up from verse 13 of that chapter. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. It says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I find this to be um, one of the most striking and memorable stories in the Gospels because of the way in which you immediately feel a sympathy with this young man who comes to Jesus in quite an earnest and sincere way and is given the, the most difficult, hardest instruction and leaves in a sense of dismay, and you immediately identify with him. Because I think there's, there's probably not one among us who thinks that if we were in his shoes, we might have done different or have, or have reacted better than the young man reacted to Jesus. You immediately sense that he was in quite a problem when Jesus said, go and sell everything. And uh, I think that that's, that way in which you identify with him is right. We're meant to feel that challenge. Now, I also think that this is one of the most important stories for us to be thinking about for the way in which it challenges 
what I think is the deepest problem and sickness of Western Christianity, which I would sum up in this way, that we have, to a large extent, redefined who Jesus is and redefined what we believe the gospel message to be, the gospel being the core teaching of the Christian faith. I think that we have more or less constructed um, an imaginary or mythical Jesus and a truncated or diluted or changed the gospel beyond recognition in some senses. And the reason why I say that is because I think that one of, one of the things that will be unsurprising to you is that in most contexts, in many contexts, uh, Jesus is, is shown to, in his purely positive senses, the grace and the kindness that he ex- exuded and exhibited towards people. And we rightly want to acknowledge that that is who he is and the way in which he conducted himself. But so often, if you were to read the Gospels, you would encounter him in his incredibly blunt, challenging, demanding teaching. This has been one of the things that has surprised me again and again as we've gone through the Gospel, just how hard it is to teach the Gospel to revisit the words of Christ himself because I know that you're going to find them difficult. I find them difficult. These are not easy teachings. It's the same with the gospel message itself. We're comfortable as long as we're talking about the kindness of God, the love of God, the grace of God. And I want to keep thinking about these things. It's right to do so. But we're much less comfortable, aren't we, to think about themes like obedience, themes like sacrifice, themes like self-denial. And it seems to me that if we have emphasized one, we've forgotten the other, haven't we? And when you read the Gospels again, as we have been doing, working our way through Mark's Gospel, we're constantly challenged. There's something abrasive about the Lord Jesus Christ at moments like this. And I fear that if we, if we take away from and diminish these negative aspects of the things that he taught or what seemed to be hard teachings, what we end up with is a diminished version of Christianity and, in fact, a kind of delusion. We can end up under a mass delusion that we think we're Christians or we think we're followers of Christ when we have not necessarily responded to him in the way that he wants us to respond to him. And ultimately, that can't serve you. I want you to think just for a minute at the picture of, on the one hand, the young man. He arrives troubled and he leaves troubled, even though on the face of it he has everything that he needs in life. On the other hand, you have the disciples who have given up absolutely everything to follow Christ. And as a result, they know joy, they know peace, they know life. It seems to me that many people have the experience of the first, the young man, that they come to church troubled and they leave troubled because ultimately you're not being confronted with the necessity of repentance and the reality of what Christ demands of you or not responding in the way that we ought to. And what you end up then with is a much less joy-filled Christian walk because your conscience troubles you, because you know that something's not right. Because you know that Christ is far from you. And what we want to hold out and what is, I'm unashamedly holding out to you this evening is this reality of what Christ shows us. 
that when we choose him above all, when he is our everything, we know joy. Now I want to approach this then by beginning with the story of this young man and asking the question, what is his failing? What is it that Christ puts his finger on in this man's life? What is it that we need to see in him before we can then reflect on our own lives and our own response to Jesus. What is going on here? Let's think about this story for a second. I want you to notice how when it comes to Jesus, he has a very genuine and earnest desire to hear what the Lord has to say. Mark tells us that he ran up and knelt. Now, I've been a pastor for a long time. I have never seen that. I've never seen it. I've seen people come into churches interested. I've seen people fold their arms and listen quizzically. I've seen people fall asleep from time to time. I've seen all kinds of things. I have never seen someone run up and kneel on the floor. Now, I'm I'm not sure that they should. I'm not suggesting that that's exactly what ought to be done. But you can see what this man is about. And when Jesus begins to dialogue with him about what's necessary to have eternal life, it's clear that this this man has lived a devout life. He's kept the commands, he says, from his youth. And Jesus doesn't dispute it. In fact, in fact, it says that he, what does it say in verse 21? That he looked at him and loved him. Now, we're not dealing here, in other words, with one of the Pharisees. You know, Jesus, when he encountered other law keepers, what does he do? He calls them hypocrites because he knows that even if they have the veneer of religious devotion, their hearts are really sick. This isn't that, that's not what's going on here. The man seems to have a very authentic desire to know God. And Jesus looks at him and he says he loves him. He feels this heartfelt compassion, but he cannot help but offer the challenge. When he says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Of course, it's too much. As, now, this is something I've seen. So often, our response to Jesus can be a no, because it's too much. And he leaves disappointed. He leaves dismayed. He wants to keep his wealth. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because we need to be very careful in understanding what's going on here. What is the one thing that he lacks? Now, I, need to, I want to rule out with you a couple of misunderstandings about this story. The first one would be this. I do not think that what Jesus is saying here to this man is that your obedience is almost perfect. And that's all that's necessary to bump you up from a 99% to a 100% record before God is that you offer, you know, give away your possessions. That, that would contradict Everything Jesus says, and in fact, even in this story, when, he's, when, he, when the young man tells Jesus, he calls him good teacher. Doesn't Jesus call him up on that in this ironic way? and says, no one's good except God. There's a kind of a wink with that because obviously he's saying, I am God. But at the same time, he's saying, none of you are good. The Bible's really emphatically clear about this. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is absolutely no question in the scriptures, but that it is impossible to offer God perfect obedience. So what is not happening here is that Jesus is not saying one thing you lack. This is the one element of obedience that's necessary to bump you up from a 99% to 100%. Just this week, uh, we went to parents' evening for my son Seth. And 
the teacher rightly highlighted a couple of things about him um, that could be worked on us. So my wife diligently went home, printed off some SATs tests for him to get him ready for when he's got to take those, and has been giving him these mock exams all week. And, you know, I overheard her the other day saying to Seth, you know, you did really well, but you got one wrong. And she's going full tiger mother on him. And, you know, this, you could think, is this what Jesus is doing to this man? He's like, let me just look at your record. Almost there. Why did you drop a grade? No, that's not what's happening here. And we need, to, we need to push that idea out of our minds that it's not what it's about here. Neither, and this is another misunderstanding, neither is Jesus saying in kind of blanket way that wealth in and of itself is evil and wrong. The Bible nowhere teaches that. The Bible rather, and some people do take that as the, the lesson or the takeaway from this story. I don't think that, I think that's a misunderstanding. But the Bible rather teaches that Every good gift comes from God. And very often through Scripture, you can see that one of the good gifts that God gives to people is he lavishes generosity upon us. Now, I don't think that that's a rule. Generosity, the nature of a gift is that you cannot, you're not entitled to receive it. But sometimes God does that. And you see it through the Scripture. You see Abraham being blessed with his flocks multiplying. You see David becoming enriched by God's favor. You see Solomon being enriched by God's favor. And it would be hypocritical for Jesus to say that being wealthy is inherently wrong because he relies upon wealthy people. We know in Luke's gospel that there are a number of wealthy women who support him in his ministry. Now, we can't very well go around receiving their money at the same time telling them that it's wrong to be wealthy, can he? When, Jesus is, when he's put to death... He's buried, Matthew tells us, in the tomb of a rich man. We know his name is Joseph of Arimathea. Wealth in and of itself is not wrong. So what is going on here? What is happening when Jesus puts his finger on something in this man's life and says, you lack one thing? In order to understand this, we, need to do, we do need to step out and just consider what wealth does and the peculiar danger of wealth before we can understand what's happening in this man's heart. The Bible does show us that wealth is a dangerous thing. I want that to rest with you for a second because we are Londoners. And as Londoners, we are surrounded by wealth. We are likely desiring to pursue more of it. And we need to hear this warning for what it is. Here's one of the passages where this is articulated very clearly in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, This is just before God brings his people into the promised land. So you can imagine they've been in a state of of longing for what was to come. When I get there, when I have my own house, when I have my own field to farm, when I can begin to accumulate possessions instead of just living in a tent, you can imagine how their dreams were going. And God was feeding this. He was promising them. Abundance, And it tells us in Deuteronomy 8, it says, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water. When you live in a desert, that is wealth, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley. You know, these things don't grow in the wilderness. Of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. And it keeps going on and on. He's saying, God's desire is to bless you. In other words, as a nation, to make you wealthier. That you would experience abundance. But just as soon as he 
promises them the blessings of what would come, he very quickly expresses to them the warning that is associated with wealth. He says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest you forget. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says a bit later, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. It could not be clearer. The Bible shows us that the danger of wealth is not that the things that we possess are inherently bad and evil, but rather that we can become so content, we can be so full with the things that we possess that we forget the God who gave them to us and no longer strive for him, no longer desire to know him. It's very often the case that when people grow wealthier, they grow less spiritual It happens among whole people groups, and it happens too in individuals. The hunger for God diminishes when your physical appetites are full. And this is what Jesus is saying, and I don't want to in any way diminish the starkness of what he teaches here when he says that it is hard to enter the kingdom as a rich person, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And some people have tried to explain this passage away and said, oh, the eye of a needle was a gate in Jerusalem and the camel had to kneel down to get through it. Now that may have been true centuries later, but it wasn't true at the time of Jesus. When he says this, he wants you to come away with the sense that that is a ridiculous thing to say because it is impossible. That's how the disciples respond. That is how dangerous money is. It's put very succinctly in the book of Proverbs where in place of wisdom, the author prays to God about the situation of his material possessions. He says, and he prays like this, listen carefully, he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't want to be poor and I don't want to be rich. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Just give me what I need, God, lest I be full And deny you and say, who is the Lord? You know, when I've got everything I need, I forget that there is a God. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It is the most middle class passage in the whole of scripture. He's saying, I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be poor. I just want to have what I need. Now, this is what the Bible has to say about the theme of wealth. And it's important that you sit with this. It's been a mark of godly men and women through the ages, that they have had to set their hearts straight when it comes to the issue of wealth. They have to, and that challenge has to keep being reiterated to us. We must consider the dangers of wealth, especially in a city like ours. But now I think we're ready to look at this man's particular issue, and I want to do this very briefly before I consider our response to this. I think that what's going on here is that Jesus, he's described him in the Gospels as being the great physician, the great doctor. 
And being a doctor of the heart, it says in John's gospel that Jesus knew the heart of man. Being a physician of souls, he looks at the man and like any skilled doctors, very often they can see very quickly what's wrong. He looks at the man and diagnoses his spiritual condition in an instant. And what he diagnoses when he looks at this man is that whereas some people can possess wealth and it not cause them spiritual harm, this man cannot. His wealth is choking his love for God and his genuine desire to know God. And there are a few ways in which wealth does that, which I think were true of this man. One is that wealth can become an idol in your life. Jesus is emphatically clear on this. I don't know if you know how much Jesus talks about money in the Gospels. He talks a lot about money because he sees it as one of the most dangerous opponents to authentic spirituality. And this is how he puts it in in Matthew chapter 6. He says, no one can serve two masters, for he'll either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. So even if he pretends to to serve two masters, really in his heart of hearts, he loves one and hates the other. And And then he puts it very clearly. He says, you cannot serve. God and money, or mammon, which is kind of a name for a deified version of money. When you look at this man's life, isn't it true that he had become an idolater? In the sense that when it came to a choice, he chose his wealth instead of Jesus. Another way you can understand that is that he was too attached to the things of this age. Now, when he comes to Jesus, he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know, give away all you have. And you would think that if he was sincere, like if he really thought about what eternity is and wants eternal life, Jesus says you'll have treasure in heaven, that he ought to have weighed up in that moment. Ah, okay, I'll give everything away and have this treasure in heaven. But what he does is he leaves because Mark tells us he has great possessions. In other words, the things of this earth weigh him down in the present to the degree that it's more important to him than his eternal future. There are very few struggling Christians for whom that is not the core issue. Things of this life become too precious, such that we choose them above and over the Lord Jesus. And another way we can understand this, he's an idolater, he's too attached to the things of this world. Another way we can understand this is a failure in his life to be childlike. I read to you that short account and how Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And what does he mean there? He does not mean that children represent innocence and that all you need to do is come back to an innocent state. My children are in Definitely not innocent. Knox is already sinning and he's only eight and a half months old. And you can see the rebellion in his heart, just wanting to burst out. Jesus is not saying that. When he says you must become like a child, he means, of course, you must become dependent in the way a child is. Children are marked by what they lack, by what they do not have, by their need to depend on others. And that, of course, is the state in which we all come to believe in Jesus. We come to the point where we say, I have nothing. But of course, when you feel like you have everything, be it wealth or some other treasure that's important to you, when you feel like you have everything, it's impossible to enter the kingdom like a child. 
Now, what does this mean to us? I want us to start by thinking about wealth as it pertains to us, because I think we have to start with the main theme of this passage, but I actually think it has a broader sense than that, and we'll get there in a second. But thinking about wealth itself, the reality is, and this is something that you have to confront, is that some of you are rich now, and that this passage ought to speak to you in that state. The question that you need to be asking yourself is whether your wealth matters too much to you, or whether it is in fact offered to God. There's a place in one of uh, Paul's letters, the letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy in chapter 6, where he deals, he speaks to wealthy people. And he, he, he challenges them in this way. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which means proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and do Uh, And to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, Paul lays out for us there a pattern of how as you handle wealth and potentially grow in your wealth, it is possible to live a godly life even as you experience abundance. And Paul says, look, these are the markers of somebody who is both wealthy and also puts Christ first. They pursue passionately to do good works for God. They want to live a life of service to the living God. They're generous with what they possess. And they share with those who are, who are in need around them. Is that you? In other words, it wouldn't take very long for us if we were to look at your life and your lifestyle, the way you spend your time or what's going on with the cash in your account and how you're using it, it wouldn't take very long for us to apply that biblical grid and to, to assess very quickly whether money is actually a problem for you. And you need to, you know, that's between you and God, but I want to urge you to go away and think about that. This also applies to those of us who, or those of you who maybe don't feel that you are rich and yet perhaps you desire it. Now, Paul speaks to that as well. Just earlier in that chapter in 1 Timothy 6, he says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. What's a snare? It's a trap to catch an animal so that you can kill it. He says you trip into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money is the root of evil. He says the love of money is the root of evil. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away through the faith, from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You think, well, how, you know, if, if you're a person, look, who desires wealth, you need to understand just what it is that you're desiring and why you want it and what that could do to you spiritually. It's very hard to escape this, isn't it, in the context in which we live? Because you rub shoulders with and meet people and walk through neighborhoods that are dripping with wealth. There are parts of London where I find it spiritually difficult to go because of the cars they drive and the houses that are there. And, you know, the the people even seem better looking for some reason. I can't quite put my finger on why. It's just the money just sort of just seems to elevate them in that way. And you think how easy it would be to be seduced by this. Paul says, don't be fooled. If you desire to be rich, 
you're going to trip into a snare. And he gives us very sound counsel just a couple of verses earlier from that when he says in verse 6 of the 6th chapter, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. You ask, what is the biblical remedy, medicine for the desire for wealth? And the Bible says contentment. If you're not content now, there's no way that adding money to your situation will improve your health spiritually. Now, Paul himself, of course, demonstrated a life of contentment. He says in the end of Philippians, I know how to abound and I know how to abase. He's saying there are times when I've I've got a full belly. You know, he was hosted at people's homes. Sometimes he stayed with wealthy people. No doubt they bought him fresh clothes. They put him up on a lovely feather bed and he enjoyed good food for weeks on end as he stayed with them. He says, I know how to abound. Other times he was in jail cells. And he said he knew contentment. He knew the secret of contentment. He knew what it was to be joyful in all of those circumstances. And that, friends, is immunity to the dangers of wealth. When you're a contented person. Now, so much for money. I actually think, though, that when we look at this story and consider what's happening in this young man's life, I think that we can see here a more general spiritual principle that is at work in his life that applies to more than just how wealthy you are. Wealth was the presenting issue for this particular man, the obstacle to him pursuing Christ. But the underlying roots of that, when I described idolatry or described his attachment to this age or described his, his inability to have a childlike dependence upon God, those roots can be true of you whether you're wealthy or not and have nothing to do with money. It can have to do with some other disease, some other spiritual disease in your life. Think of it this way. If you have stage four cancer and it's looking very dangerous for you, It doesn't much matter whether that is cancer of the liver or cancer of the pancreas. In other words, it doesn't matter so much whether the disease is wealth or some other issue in your life. The importance is that there is that one thing in your life. That is the thing that needs to be cut out, that needs to be dealt with. And it may be the case that even even if it's not wealth, that you might be like this man, that you might have the appearance of godliness but not truly know God. You might have the sincere piety. You know, we, we're amazed at this man's genuine religious devotion, but not really but the, the reality that he was far from God. Or that you may have repented from an entire list of sins, you know, stuff you've dealt with in your life. But here's the question. Would Jesus turn to you and say, there's that one thing? You lack one thing. That's what I want you to think on for this moment. Is it possible that there is one thing that you will not and have not and refuse to surrender to Jesus? How would you know? Well, consider this. Is there something in your life that you count more precious to you than following Christ? Something that you will refuse to let go of? Is there something that you won't renounce or turn away from? 
something that you know isn't pleasing God. And when I ask you that question, I don't particularly think that you need to think for very long about that question. It's the first thing that comes to mind. It's the thing that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind whenever you're with God's people, whenever you hear the call of Christ. It's the thing that you won't let go of. If for this man it was his wealth, for others it's, it's a relationship. A desire to act out in ways that are sexually inappropriate. A course of direction in their life or an ambition or something which pulls you away from Christ, obsesses you. And I want to ask you, is there something in your life that gives you a greater sense of identity than being a disciple of Jesus? This man, that was his core problem, wasn't it? That when he considered who he was, he knew himself to be a rich man. His wealth was part of what made him who he was. It's what gave him importance. Perhaps it's what made him feel like he could walk straight up to Jesus and ask a question like this. To renounce his wealth would have made him a nobody. Would have been, in a sense, to cut out a part of who he was. And the reality is that many people walk away from Jesus for, for exactly that reason. They say, in order to follow Jesus, I have to deny myself in some way. I have to deny this part of my identity. And I say to you, yes, that's exactly right. Very often that is true. What does Jesus want you to know, friends? How can you be brought to a place where you will gladly choose and follow him? And turn away from that which you know is displeasing to him. And I want to say to you at this point that I think Jesus understands the difficulty of this decision. And I say that because of how he responds to this man. How, he says, how, we, how Mark tells us that he looked at him and loved him. Jesus doesn't stand there in anger and judgment over him, frowning. He stands there with a deep ache of compassion because he knows just how hard the decision is for this man that he's laid before him. And then he, he gives words to that when he says to the disciples how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Jesus understands. He's sympathetic. He's compassionate with the challenge of following him, what it means to actually keep repenting so that you can turn and follow Christ. How difficult it is, Jesus would say, for this son or daughter to turn from that thing. There are a few things that I want you to be conscious of, though, as we close. That I hope would be compelling to you. The first is this. That you can't really have him unless you choose him above all. That, to me, is the great missing element of the way Jesus is preached and communicated and understood in the popular conscience, consciousness in our society. People very often don't understand that Jesus is extremely demanding. He says, you, you choose me above all or you cannot have me at all. And we see it, we see it playing out in a very visible and physical way in the life of this man because he literally walks away from Jesus. 
And it may not be the case that you have physically walked away. But it may be the case that every day that's what you're doing inside. Your heart is walking away from Jesus because you are wanting to keep hold of what he's called you to let go of. And Jesus says, you can't have me unless you choose me above all. The second thing I want to remind you of is that you cannot give up more than he will give back. This is how the story comes to a a kind of conclusion. As Peter reminds Jesus that they've given up everything to follow him, I think Peter's feeling a sense of relief and thanks to God that they didn't do what that young man did. And Jesus says, anyone who's given up houses, lands, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, they'll receive a hundredfold in this life with persecutions and then life to come, eternal life. Now, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat this. He doesn't sort of diminish the difficulty of following Christ. He doesn't say to you that to choose him is to choose the easy road, the road that will be full of sugar plums and rainbows and dancing and giddiness. He doesn't say that. He says it's with persecutions. This is going to be a hard road. But he says, I will give you far more than you give up. And it's been the testimony of so many Christians who have sought to embrace Christ that they have inherited more in Jesus than than anything they've given up. To the extent where they say, I gave up nothing. I gave up nothing. I got Christ. I got his church. I got his favor on my life. You can't give up more than he'll give back. In fact, it may be the case And I suspect this may be true for one or two of you right now that you've been wrestling in your spirit for a time about this very issue. Can I give this up? Can I turn away from this? And really when it comes down to it, the reason you're hesitating is because you think, well, if I do, what will I get at the other end? Will I have joy? Will my life be full? That's the journey of faith, isn't it? It's pretty much the definition of faith. To seize hold of that which you cannot see by letting go of that which you can see. Let me remind you of one last thing. What's really being weighed up here for this man is, in fact, eternity. Perhaps we don't talk about this often enough. But he comes to Jesus with that question, doesn't he? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, give away everything and follow me. The Christian gospel is the message that by believing on Jesus, you can have eternal life. But the evidence that a person has believed upon Jesus and received his grace through his atoning death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, the evidence that you have embraced Christ, that you have placed your faith in him, is always that you choose to obey. Not perfectly, not all of the time, but basically you want to run after Jesus. 
And really when it comes down to it, the reason this man could not believe on Jesus and receive eternal life is because he didn't want to follow Christ. And Jesus banishes him in a sense from his presence forever. And I want to remind you of that because as I said, I don't think we speak about this often enough. But the Bible is clear and very stark in speaking about these things. I think if we were honest with ourselves, we ask, did this man make a wise and rational choice? We say, no, he wasn't rational. What he chose made no sense because what happened to him and his possessions? I want to ask you as I close, what is your one thing? I think this applies to every single one of us. None of us ought to escape the self-examination of that question. Some of you are not Christian, and this is it. This is what you have to wrestle with. You've been considering the claims of Christ. Maybe you've come to believe that he is the Son of God. Maybe you've come to believe that he did die for your sins, and in fact, that he was raised from the dead. And believing that intellectually is a massive step, but it's not enough, is it? Because the next thing you have to do is say, well, what's the one thing? What's the thing I need to renounce or turn away from in order to embrace Jesus? And even though so many of us are already followers of Christ, so often that thing can be looming up, can't it? Seducing us away from him. What's the one thing? What's the thing that comes to mind where you feel that Jesus puts a choice in front of you? Do you want me? Or do you want that? I want to lead us in prayer. My hope and my desire is that even now, each of us will reflect on this man's story And our longing will be, God, help me to choose you. You picture Jesus there and his love and compassion towards this man. He He has that same love for you. And even if he gives us a strong and certain call, It comes with his love and his desire to embrace. Let's pray together. Father, I want to ask that as we think about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his matchless worth, that, Lord, you will help us to move towards him in love and embrace rather than away from him in fear. that you'd give the grace of repentance where we can let go of that one thing so that we can have Christ. In your name.
name, Lord, we pray. Amen. There's a moment uh, towards the end of the Gospels when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is praying to the Father. This prayer will be familiar to many of you that he prays, Abba, Father. This is him wrestling with God on the night before he's put on trial. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And there was the cup of judgment which he was called to drink to the dregs when he died on the cross. Remove it from me, he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. And Christ offered to the Father his perfect obedience there. But we also see the conflict of spirit. And that ought to give you encouragement when there's a conflict, when there's an internal wrestling going on. Understand that Jesus walked that road. We're going to eat the bread and we're going to drink the wine. And we do it knowing Jesus chose us. When he said, yet not my will, but your will be done, his desire to go to the cross, because he saw on the other side of the cross, he saw us. He saw his possession, his people. So you can't eat the bread and drink the wine in a state of denying him or in a state of not wanting him and not choosing him. We eat and we drink because we say, Lord, if you chose me, I want to choose you. We eat and we drink because we know that he possessed us before we could ever possess him. We eat to respond, right? I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine. I want to encourage you to remain seated and to pray that prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. Let's worship together.